Well, everyone considered him the coward of the county. He never stood one single time to prove the county wrong. His mama called him Tommy. The folks just called him Yellow. But something always told me they were reading Tommy wrong. Now, he was only 10 years old when his daddy died in prison. I looked after Tommy because he was my brother's son. I still recall the final words my brother said to Tommy. Son, my life is over, but yours has just begun. Now promise me, son, not to do the things I've done. Walk away from trouble if you can. It don't mean you're weak if you turn the other cheek. I hope you're old enough to understand. Son, you don't have to fight to be a man. Well, there's someone for everyone, and Tommy's love was Becky. And in her arms, he didn't have to prove that he was a man. One day, while he was working, the Gatlin boys came calling. They took turns at Becky. There were three of them. Now, Tommy opened up the door, and he saw his Becky crying. The torn dress, the shattered look was more than he could stand. He reached above the fireplace and took down his daddy's picture. As the tears fell on his daddy's face, I heard these words again. Promise me, son, not to do the things I've done. Walk away from trouble if you can. That don't mean you're weak. If you turn the other cheek, I hope you're old enough to understand. Son, you don't have to fight to be a man. Well, the Gatlin boys just laughed at him when he walked into the bar room. One of them got up and met him halfway across the floor. When Tommy turned around, they said, Hey, look, old Yella's leaving. But you could have heard a pin drop when Tommy stopped and locked the door. Now, 20 years of crawling were bottled up inside him. He wasn't holding nothing back. He let him have it all. When Tommy left the bar room, not a Gatlin boy was standing. He said this once for Becky as he watched the last one fall. And I heard him say, I promised you, Dad, not to do the things you've done. I walked away from trouble when I could. Now, please don't think I'm weak because I didn't turn the other cheek. Papa, I sure hope you understand. Sometimes you have to fight when you're a man. Now, before he ever owned a showboat in Branson, before he ever opened a successful chain of rotisserie chicken restaurants, Kenny Rogers was turning out hits like this back in the 1980s. And uh, The Coward of the County was a, a very popular song. And, and uh, I, you know, I, I grew up, I, I grew up on this stuff. Um, it, it came to me as I was uh, just outside working, raking the yard a little bit uh, on Friday. I began humming that tune. Um, it sounded a little different from the 8-track version. But uh, I, I, I still remembered a little bit about that song. And, and I, I was thinking about that song. And I thought that song really talks about a principle. It says that sometimes in life there are principles that are given. Don't fight. But there are also times when an exception might come to that principle. I'm not making a moral comment on Kenny Rogers' song, but that's the point Kenny was trying to say. There are times when principles, exceptions are made to those principles. And I was thinking about that because right now we're in the middle of a series of messages, a three-week series entitled Too Taboo to Talk About. And, and this series of three weeks is, is really walking through an integration for us of two topics that are a little 
too taboo at times to talk about around the dinner table. Politics and religion. And as we, we integrate those two topics and we think about government and we think about uh, our, our faith in Christ, I mean, how do those two things come together? And, and as Christians living in America in the middle of an election year, just post-Super Tuesday, uh, but clearly with a lot of discussion around us in the days ahead, how do we think about that issue uh, from a Christian perspective? What would God want us to do as we think about the integration of our faith in our government. And so this three-week series has been walking through that, and we've, we've seen it kind of in three movements. Last week we began, and we talked about a Christian understanding of government from Romans 13, 1 to 7. We saw some general principles about uh, what the government is created for. It's created to do good for us, an instrument of God's grace to us in a common way that God has created government to do good for us. Um, we talked about that from Romans 13. This week, we're going to talk about, uh, really, um, civil disobedience in the Christian. Last week, we saw that one of the responses to the fact that government is an instrument of God is that we are to submit to that government. If we're to submit to that government, are there ever any exceptions to that? And so this week, we're going to talk about those exceptions. Are there any in Scripture that we see? And that is the issue of civil disobedience. And how do we voice dissent as we live out our faith? Uh, and still in a respectful way to our government. We'll look at that this week. And then next week, we'll, we'll continue on in the series and wrap up with the idea of what does it mean to live the life of a resident alien. And I said this last week, this is not uh, where we will unfold Wildwood's opinion about uh, the illegal, you know, illegal alien issue in the United States. Uh, we're not going to talk about that uh, next week in a direct way, but what we will talk about is how all of us as believers in Christ have a citizenship that goes beyond this place. We have a citizenship in heaven. And many times Christians are referred to as aliens in the land. What does that mean and how does it relate to our understanding of government? We'll talk about that next week. But one of the things we saw last week was we saw this general principle that was laid out for us. And that, that general principle was laid out, we saw in a couple of spots, in Romans 13.1 and in 1 Peter 2.13 and 14. Romans 13.1 says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which... God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. In other words, as believers in Christ, we are to submit to governing authorities. Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter 2 when he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are set by him. That's the general principle that God has given in how we should relate to the governing authorities over us. But if that's the principle, like Tommy and the Kenny Rogers song, is there ever a time that we are given permission by God to not submit to our government? Are there any exceptions to that principle? And that's really what we're going to talk about this week as we look at this issue of civil disobedience and the Christian. And so we're going to look at that today from a selection of different passages as we look at Too Taboo to Talk About, Part 2, Civil Disobedience and the Christian. Uh, we're going to see a couple of things this morning. Uh, the first thing I want us to see is that submitting to government is a principle with exceptions given for us in Scripture. It is a principle with an exception. Uh, and, and we see that in, in history. God provides this exception to us through a number of historical examples. As God's people lived in environments and underneath governments that were corrupt and evil and did all kinds of things... 
uh, God gave us some examples of the kinds of times that He wants us as His people to not follow the laws that are instituted by our land. Uh, One of those times is found in the book of Exodus. And we're going to be scrolling through a number of these. If you've got a Bible with you, you might want to take it out and and look, or you can just listen as we go through. Um, But there are a number of these examples. And and in the book of Exodus, in chapter 1... Uh, we find that the people of God, the nation of Israel, had, 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 was, was underneath the authoritarian rule of the Egyptians. And, and Pharaoh, who was the leader of, of Egypt, became very distressed about this growing population of um, Israelites. And so because of his discomfort with that, he passed a very difficult law. In in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 15, it says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives... Hebrew midwives were those who would be present at the delivery of these Hebrew or Israelite children. It says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shepra and Pua. I have no idea if that's how you pronounce it. We'll go with that. Uh, He says, "When, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and you observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. And the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave the order to all of his people, Every boy that is born, you must throw him into the Nile, but let every girl live. So you have this situation where Pharaoh, king of Egypt, a governing authority, declares a law which is the annihilation or the killing of all of these boys that are born. Now, that was a law given by a governing authority. And Romans 13 tells us that all governing authorities are established by God and we're to submit to them. But what's interesting is that the Hebrew midwives realized that they had an allegiance higher than to this government. As the government was issuing this law, which was in direct violation to what God says is right, they decided to not kill those children and God commends them for it. In other words, an exception exists in Exodus 1. And God says, I'm glad you made that exception. This is a principle. Submitting to government is a principle with an exception. We see this also in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel in chapter 3. Where we we have the story of, of three men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with a number of the Israelites, had been taken away into captivity into the land of Babylon. And Babylon at the time was ruled by Nebuchadnezzar, a ruling authority, a governing authority. And that governing authority over the land issued a law um, in chapter 3 of Daniel in verse 4 to 6 that said this. It says, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations of men, and of every language. In other words, here's the new law that Nebuchadnezzar has passed. 
It says, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So the law comes down. You must worship an idol. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hear that law, but they do something different. In verse 12, it says, But there was some Jews who, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. In other words, the people are seeing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't following this law. So they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. So they have broken the law, and now they come and they stand before Nebuchadnezzar. And as they stand before Nebuchadnezzar in verse 23, the story continues. And it says that the three men Nebuchadnezzar tied up firmly and threw them into a blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement. And he asked his advisors, weren't there three men who we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And what you have in that story is you have an evil king who passes a bogus law that requires all people to worship a false god, a false idol. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego see that this law has come to them from a governing authority. But they decide to make an exception to that law. And they decide to not follow that law. Because following that law would put them in direct violation of a command of God to have no other gods before them. To bow down before no graven image. And so they decide not to do that. And Nebuchadnezzar is upset. He recognizes their act as disobedience. And so he tries to punish them by throwing them into a fire. But one of the things that is great is that our, our, our God comes and commends them. We see God commending them for their disobedience and that God joins them in, the, in that fire. The presence of God is with them as they are in that, that fire and none of them are hurt. So we see an exception in Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, submitting to government is something that has an exception to it. We see it also in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel 6 is another instance. And and Daniel 6 is the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And in the story of Daniel and the lion's den, once again, Daniel is one of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's contemporaries, one of his friends, and they're living in a foreign nation. And at this point, there's a King Darius... And King Darius has some administrators, some friends that pass an evil law. And in chapter 6, beginning in verse 7, it says, The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den." Now, O king, issue the decree and put it into writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. 
Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, listen to what he did. It says he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem and three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. The law comes from a governing authority and Daniel says, no, I'm going to make an exception to that law to not pray to anyone but to King Darius. I'm going to continue to pray to my God because that is who I'm instructed to pray to. And so in 7 to 10 in chapter 6 we see that. The story continues on in verse 16. It says, The king gave the order and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually rescue you. In other words, the king finds out that Daniel has been disobedient and so Daniel is punished by being thrown into the lion's den. But then in, in verse 19, the story continues with this interesting thing. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. And what we see there is that the governor, the king, sets out a law that is contrary to God's command. Daniel disobeys that law, and God commends him for it. God shuts the mouths of the lions. It's obvious that God was pleased with Daniel in his disobedience. Submitting to government is a principle with an exception. Uh, We see over in the book of Acts a New Testament example of this very same thing. In the book of Acts in chapter 4, we have the scene where we have Jesus is resurrected and he is ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit has come down upon the apostles and the apostles are walking around the land of uh, Palestine, specifically in Jerusalem here, and they're doing the very same kinds of things that Jesus did and they're preaching messages that are pointing people back to Christ and they're healing the sick. And all these different things. And, and, and the same people that arrested Christ and had him delivered over to the hands of the Romans for crucifixion, uh, those same governing authorities became very irritated with the behavior of these followers of Christ. And so in chapter 4 and verse 18, it says that those who were in power called in to them uh, Peter and John, who had been speaking about Christ. So they called into them again and they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. In other words, a governing authority in the land of Jerusalem had come to Peter and John and said, Stop talking about Jesus. Stop telling other people about Christ. So what did they do when they heard this? They listened to that? No. Peter and John and the other apostles didn't heed that law. They decided that there was a higher law, that God had called them to something even greater than that. And in chapter 5 and verse 18, it says, They arrested the apostles and they put them into the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord appeared in the doors of the jail and brought them out. They said, Go into the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life. And at daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and they began to teach the people about Christ. In other words, the very thing they had been instructed not to do, they were continuing to do. And so they're called back in before the council, 
in verse 28 of chapter 5. And, and the council, the governing authority says, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of the blood of Christ. And so Peter speaks up. This is what Peter says in 529. It says, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. Now what we see in those four examples is we see that submitting to government is a principle with an exception. God has given us a historical timeline that shows us an exception. Now, what is that exception? We've seen it highlighted in in these historical accounts, but what is the exception? The exception is this. If a governing authority ever requires, very important word, if if a governing authority ever requires that we do something that is in direct violation to a a commandment that God has given, a specific commandment that God has given, then we are given permission. And by conscience, we should break that law. If a government ever requires that we do something that is in violation to a specific commandment of God, then by conscience, we should break that law of government. In other words, we should obey God rather than men when they come in, in conflict in that way. And so you see that across the stories. God does not want us to kill infants. That's not something that God wants us to do. So that when Pharaoh says, kill babies, the Hebrew midwives say, we won't do that. We appeal to a higher source. We appeal to God. We'll obey God. We will obey God rather than men. So that when Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down and worship an idol, they say, we're not supposed to worship idols. We're only to worship God himself. We're going to obey God rather than men. So that when the, the king says, you will only, pay, only pray to, to me and you will not pray to any other God, they say, we'll, Daniel says, we'll obey God rather than men. When the governing authorities of Jerusalem come and say, you will tell no one about Christ, the apostles say, we will obey God rather than men. How can we stop telling this story that God has compelled us to tell? Uh, The the exception to the principle is that if we are ever required by government to do something that is in direct contradiction to a commandment of God, then we are compelled by conscience to break that law. Now, I've thought about that, and I've thought about that in in a lot of things. And one one little caveat to that principle that we need to, to see is that when they decided to engage in civil disobedience... When each of those people, the Hebrew midwives, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, and the apostles, when they decided to engage in civil disobedience, it's interesting that they were only going to engage in that civil disobedience to break the law that was in direct violation to the commandment of God. In other words, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were breaking the law by not bowing down to worship the idol, but they also didn't decide, well, since our king is going to have us do that, then I'm going to just break all of his laws. I'm going to go rape and pillage and steal and do whatever because it's anarchy now, right? No, they they didn't do that. They were only going to break the law that they were being required to do that was in violation with a direct commandment of God. That's an interesting thing to note. And as as you put all of that together, as you put that exception together and you think about that in relation to the world in which we live, the question is, 
Is there an instance in our country right now where we are being required to do something that is in direct violation to a specific commandment of God? There is an exception. Do we have an exception in our midst? I think it's important when we begin to think about that, to think, you know what? It's not that we are to break the law when we see something that is being done that our government permits that is against His will. That doesn't fit the qualifications of the exception. What fits the qualifications of the exception is if, is if our government is requiring us to do something. Is there an example in our culture of something that our government is requiring us to do, which is in direct violation to a commandment of God. And you know, as I've thought about that this week, I, I haven't been able to come up with one. Uh, and, I, and I say that with great humility. I'm a small-minded person, and I don't have full knowledge of all of the laws of our land. But as I live out my life, there are not times during my week that I feel like I need to break the law to follow our God. I would just challenge you to think about that in the world in which you live. Now, now one interesting thing that we would, would want to think about is uh, these, these areas of, of things in which our government permits. Things that our government permits, would we ever be allowed to break the law to stop an evil practice that our government permits? Uh, an example of that would be uh, abortion, Right? Abortion is something, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a really a, a, a dark practice uh, within our, our culture where infants' lives are taken before they have an opportunity to enter into uh, this world as we know it on the outside. And we think about that and we think, well, that's a difficult thing. Well, would we ever enter into civil disobedience as a culture to stop that? Is it okay to line up in front of an abortion clinic and trespass on their facilities in order to keep people from entering inside. Uh, we'll think about our exception. Are abortions required by our government? No. If you go and trespass on the building of an abortion clinic, which law are you breaking? The law that permits abortion or the law of trespassing. You would be breaking the law of trespassing. Um, just as if our building here on a Sunday was surrounded by picketers, atheist picketers, uh, we might want to call local authorities and have them come out to break up that picket line. That same law that we would use to have the government do good for us is the same law that permits an abortion clinic from breaking up a picket line that is trespassing on their lands. I don't think, as I read these passages, that we have permission to break the law. It doesn't mean that we can't voice dissent, and we'll talk about that a little later on. But we don't have permission to break the law, to break another law, to oppose things that our governing authorities permit. But if our governing authorities ever came to a time where they required that all of us abort babies beyond our first child... If our government ever came to that spot, that's a law I would break. If our government ever passed a law that said you can't gather in the name of Christ to worship, that's a law I would break. If our government ever passed a law that said 
it is illegal to tell others about Christ or for someone to come to Christ, that's a law I would break. Those are direct commands of God. And if the government ever comes to a spot of requiring us to break a commandment of God, then I think the exception then is in play. Now what's interesting is that when we follow through with that exception, what happens? In each of these stories that we saw, when the people followed through with the exception, when they decided to engage in civil disobedience, to break the laws of their land in order to follow God, in every instance, negative consequences came to them. Now, in some ways, God rescued them from those negative consequences, but negative consequences came. They get thrown in a fire. They get thrown to lions. They get imprisoned and beaten. All of those things were the consequences of their not obeying the law. And I think that one of the things that happens in this world is that when Christians are required to do something that is in violation to God, and they do those things, then they will be many times punished by the governments in which they live in. Um, In much the same way that Christ was uh, crucified, Christians are persecuted around the world. And even though we sit here in this place today, uh, and we can't think of exceptions in our culture where our government is requiring us to to disobey God, uh, that is not the world in which we live. You know, it's very interesting to note that right now, and these are very, I would would put these on the low end of reality, okay? Uh, But if if you look at some statistics, even on the low end that were done by a British organization, Right now, 200 million, 200 million people. What, what, is, what does that number represent? 200 million people represents the number of people who are living as Christians underneath a government that is persecuting them for their faith in Christ in the world today. I would put that on the low end. I would put that on the low end. But 200 million. You know what that means? That means that it is far more normal in 21st century life for people to be living in an environment where the exception is at play than it is for us who are trying to think, I wonder what the exception might be. It's just a reality of the world in which we live. How about this statistic? 26 million. What does 26 million represent? 26 million represents the number of people who died for their faith in Christ in the 20th century. That's more than all of the rest of history combined. Lest we think that we have suddenly graduated as a world to a time where persecution is not common because of maybe some experience that we have in this country. We need to remember that 26 million people died because they believed in Christ over a 100-year period in in the century we just left. Those statistics are are, are very instructive to us, I think, in a number of ways. I think that, that first of all, they ought to remind us that just as we talked about last week, we ought to be very thankful for the common grace of God to us through our government. If governments are things that God has created to do good to his people, we may be frustrated. We may not like this policy. We may not like that policy. We may not like this candidate. We may not like that candidate. We may wonder why Congress 
moves at the pace they do. We may wonder why, uh, you know, the, the, the Fed is up and down in terms of interest rates. We may have all kinds of questions. But you know what? As, as believers in Christ who have a God, God's eye perspective on things from his word, we need to just pause for a second and just thank God for the tremendous blessing that we have to gather, to worship, to, to share Christ with our friends, all without fear of being arrested for it. Uh, that is a reality that exists in the world, not in fairy tale times, not in just in Bible times, but right now, today, in many countries around the world. And I think we need to, we need to remember that. And I think the second thing is we need to remember that that, that exception is still in play. And it is possible that at some point in time, our government will pass laws that will require us as believers in Christ to disobey them in order to be obeying God rather than men. And when that time comes, we need to know that we're not alone in that fight. As a matter of fact, we're just getting with the program, if that ever comes about, of what is happening with the rest of the world. Um, we live in a unique time and era as it pertains to government's rule over, over us. Uh, we just need to remember those things. Submitting to government is a principle, and it has an exception. The second thing I want us to see regarding this is, is what do we do, not, not just when government is requiring us to do certain things, but how do we voice dissent with our government as Christians? In other words, we might say it this way. Submitting to government does not equal agreement with the government. Submitting to government doesn't mean that we just agree with everything they say. It's not that government becomes our God and whatever they say, we say, yay, that's awesome. That's not what submission, that's not what honoring, that's not what respect is. That's not what God had in mind in Romans 13. Uh, there are times, and indeed many times, when we as believers in Christ, especially in a democratic environment, will be at odds in a perspective with what is being shared from our government. So what are we to do in those instances where our government is uh, looking at things and thinking about things are different? Well, I think there's some principles that we need to remember in this. Uh, The the first one is this. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says this. says, talking about Jesus, says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now, there are layers and layers of meaning to that, and and I'm not going to cover all of those. But one of the things I think that that verse reminds us of is that this world is a dark place. And when we need direction and clarity in dark places, light is needed. You ever go on a camp out, you're outside and, and it's really dark, what do you do? If you need to go off into the woods to gather firewood or something, turn on a flashlight. Why? Because light gives clarity within darkness. When you walk into a dark room, and this room has no windows, and many times during the week I'll have to pass through to go into the gathering hall to get something or whatever. I walk into this room. It is pitch black in here. I mean, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've tripped over those stairs um, until I finally realized, you know what? Einstein, all you have to do is turn on the light when you enter the room, and then you can see. Light gives clarity within darkness. And you know what? We live in a dark world, 
in the dark world in which we live in has many complicated issues. And you know what, we could, we could apply this in a number of different settings, but let's just think about some of the complicated issues within the dark world in which we live that our government right now is dealing with. Just some of the issues, the buzzwords of the campaign. Issues like Iraq. Issues like threats to national security. Uh, issues like the sanctity of marriage. The legality of abortion. Uh, issues like our economy. Uh, immigration. Uh, you, you name it. We could, we could add all these things. Unless we think, you know, well, I've got all the answers to all of those issues. Just on my own. I've got, I've got the, uh, somebody just needs to ask me and I can figure all that stuff out. No, these are complicated issues. And you know what? I, I think in complicated issues in a dark world, it's like walking through a room with a lot of stairs in it. And how do you make walking in a dark room with a lot of stairs in it acceptable? You turn on some lights. And I think that Jesus Christ desires to shine light into our world. He desires to to add light and perspective to a lot of the the issues uh, that we are dealing with as a country and and as individuals. And, And how does Jesus want to shine that light? How does he want to bring that that clarity. And I think that Jesus wants to bring that clarity uh, through us. When Jesus was giving uh, maybe his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 13, he makes a couple of declarations about you and I. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And then he goes on, he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. I think that what God is trying to communicate to us is that he wants us to be his light bearers in the world. And again, that has a lot of applications. But as it pertains to our government, I think that... God desires that you and I be his vessels to help shine some light on these difficult topics, these complex issues that our country is facing. We do that a number of ways. We do that by voting. You become educated with the process. You become, you look at the issues that exist in our world. You run that through a grid of what God's word says about those issues. And you begin to form some convictions. And then as you form those convictions based on what you understand God to be saying about these topics, you go and you look at candidates and you see which candidate represents the things that are most closely resemble the perspectives and the convictions that that I have in this area. I'm going to vote for them. Voting for a candidate in that environment really is an opportunity for us to help shine some light on a situation. As a believer in Christ, when you go to vote, you you ought to vote thinking, this is the candidate that will help shine the most light on a topic. Now, I don't mean that by what was their previous vocation, and I don't mean that by based on what is their um, professed church that they attend or anything like that. Uh, Though I do think that faith in Christ would be significant. But I think that what what it does indicate uh, is that we have an opportunity to help shine some light on some issues that mirror God's perspective. 
And as we vote, when we vote for candidates that have those same values, it's an opportunity for us collectively as Christians to, to shine some light on a situation. I think one of the ways that we can do is that we can support a candidate. We can do things. Another thing that we can do is we can, uh, and we talked about this last week, but we can continue to pray for and support um, government officials. At times, maybe there's a perspective that you feel like is really important based on a biblical principle that you might want to write a letter about and mail to a congressman and let him know, not, you sorry so-and-so, but let him or her know, you know what, as a believer in Christ, I think God's word shines some light on a difficult issue. Would you consider this in your understanding of this? You know, I think that is a respectful way, just as voting would be, a respectful way for us to help shine some light on some of these issues, even on a national level. Because submitting to government is not equal with just agreeing with everything they say. There is a a need for us as believers in Christ to help be used of God to shine some light into our dark culture. And one of the ways we can do that is by involving ourselves in the political process, by educating ourselves, by voting, by interacting with those in governing authorities over us. So we've looked about this issue of civil disobedience in the Christian this week. And as we've done that, we've seen that submitting to government, we've seen two things about that. One is, it's a principle that has an exception. If the government ever requires us to do something that is in direct violation to a commandment of God, then by conscience we must break that law. And the second thing we've seen, that submitting to government is not equal with agreeing with them. There will be times where we will have different opinions than our government. And, and there are times when we need to help shine that light. To not just be, as Christians, just a subset of one political party. But we as Christians would be people scattered around this country who would be used to shine light for all of us on some complex issues that we have to deal with in the dark. Christ is the light. You know, we, we've seen a general understanding of government, and we've seen kind of this issue of when we might disagree with government. And next week we're going to wrap up this series by looking at the issue of, of uh, what does it mean to live the life of a resident alien? What does it mean to have a citizenship both here and in heaven? And we will talk about that next week. Uh, let me pray for us as uh, we transition. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us today. And we thank you for your word and the power of it. We pray that you would uh, help us to be people who would be appreciative of the common blessings that you have given us uh, as citizens of the United States. Privileges that allow us to gather here and worship. Privileges that allow us to uh, share our faith freely without fear of retribution, of imprisonment or death. Father, we, we are thankful for that. Uh, and Father, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world right now who are not experiencing that same privilege that we are. And we pray that you would continue to grow their number, that you would continue to encourage their hearts. And Father, even as so many of them are in prison right now, Father, that they would have a, a sense that they are not there alone, 
but that the body of Christ is with them and that just as you were there in the fiery furnace, that you would be with them in their time of trial. Uh, We thank you and we pray for each of us that we would walk forward from this place uh, seeking to integrate these taboo topics of faith and politics. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.